So our scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 12, verses 6 to 19. The night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep, fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Others stood guard at the prison gate. Suddenly, there was a bright light in the cell, and the angel of the Lord stood before Peter. The angel struck him on the side to awaken him and said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his wrists. Then the angel told him, Get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did. Now put on your coat and follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell, following the angel. But all the time he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. They passed the first and second guard posts and came to the iron gate leading to the city. And this opened for them all by itself. So they passed through and started walking down the street. And then the angel suddenly left him. Peter finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. When he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many were gathered for prayer. He knocked at the door in the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter is standing at the door. You're out of your mind, they said. When she insisted, they decided it must be his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. When they finally opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. He motioned for them to quiet down and told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers what happened, he said. And then he went to another place. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. After, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. It's the word of the Lord. So, um, this morning... Uh, my preaching attire is very, very intentional. I have, a, I have a good friend named Tim Anderson who I um, was blessed to meet and work uh, at a church uh, nearby his and, and get to get to know him um, while we were in Indiana. And uh, he is preaching at a church in Montgomery, Alabama um, right now, um, one of the largest black congregations of Church of Christ in, in Alabama. And he is... Um, they are obviously at the center of what's going on. And, and this Sunday, they have asked um, everyone that was willing um, in their congregation and in congregations around them to wear black today as a sign of grieving, as a sign of mourning. Not necessarily just mourning the deaths of Alton and Flando, um, and not necessarily just mourning the deaths of the tragic reprisal against the officers in Dallas and in other areas as a response. Um, but just mourning and grieving the entire situation um, where you have um, distrust and mistrust of those who are supposed to protect and serve, where you have um, great evidence that, that after all this time, things are not as they should be. Um, and even after all of the speeches, even after all of the, the, the legislature, even after all of everything, you still have sections of society that are not viewed with the same value as other sections of society and just grieving and mourning the whole thing and so this morning I stand in solidarity with them and I want you to know that and I want you to know why I'm doing that 
is not, not to make a political statement, not to make a social statement, not to make an ethical or a moral statement, but simply to say things are not as God intends them to be. And that is a reality that I think that we overlook all too often. Why? Because it's depressing. Um, let's just be honest. Um, and, and especially if you, if, you don't, if you don't have answers to it, it is something that really erodes your, it, it erodes your outlook on life. It does. And, and so even in the middle of that, I, I want to make a confession that, that sometimes it's hard for me to know what to do about things like these. Not just as a minister, not as somebody who, who's able to publicly speak into these things or, or to, to lead a church congregation to consider these things from the pulpit. But just as a human, it is hard for me to know what to do. I've had people email and call and, and flood my social media feed asking for answers and asking for comfort. And, and I have to confess, sometimes I feel that what I have to give is inadequate to address these things. Um, and I had to be reminded by somebody this week, a friend of mine who is also in ministry, that, that, that quick solutions, pithy thoughts, um, sound bites, they are not going to win the day against tragedies like this. Because at the end of the day, all that we really have is both the comfort and the model of Jesus Christ and the ability to live out what we believe. And so when things get darker, we are called to be his image of light. And at the end of the day, sometimes that's all we've got. And as I kind of thought about that, and I, and I thought about this passage that, that we're working through this week in Acts chapter 12, I realized that I have come to, I don't know, not a deficiency in the practice of my faith, but maybe a, a, a short-sightedness, a misinterpretation, a... Uh, a an area of growth, okay? And, and what it is is simply this. I, I have come to a practice or I have come to an assumption and a mindset that worship and prayer are the things that we tag on to the end of our efforts to shape the world in the image of Jesus Christ. We do what we can with all the ability that we can to the extent that we can and when we've done all we can, whether it's enough or in cases like this where it's not enough, then we sink back when we've exhausted ourselves against the tide of racism or sexism or imperialism or whatever ism it is that you're trying to go up against with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we, we exhausted, sink back, spent, and begin to pray that God can somehow do something. Or we apply worship like a bomb to try and soothe our weary souls after we've applied all of our efforts, like massaging an aching muscle after a long run or a hard day's work. And that's what worship becomes. And don't misunderstand me. That is exactly what prayer and worship can do. They are a refuge for our souls. They are things that we turn to regularly. But I think we've gotten the order wrong. You see, when prayer and worship become the things that I engage in last instead of first in priority 
in my life, it reduces my understanding of them. And I think, indeed, they no longer accomplish the things that they were set out to do. As I read through Acts chapter 12 this week, I kept coming back to this question. What do we actually expect worship and prayer to do? Do we actually have an expectation for our worship and an expectation for our prayer? Or do we just do them because, well, that's what disciples do? That may be a starting point, but that certainly isn't an ending point. And if there's something that I saw this week looking at this chapter, and if there's something that, that I think that the Word has to say to us today, it is simply this. I should expect more, not less, out of the worship of God and engaging Him in prayer. The church has faced a variety of opponents in the narrative of Acts so far, but it's here at the beginning of Acts chapter 12 that the empire of Rome rises up to take on the risen Christ and his disciples and his gospel. And Luke doesn't even really tell us why Herod decides to move against the followers of the way, but, I mean, you don't really have to go very far to fill in the gaps. It's not hard to imagine a movement that has at its forefront one claiming to be the true and righteous king would be perceived as a threat. And so Herod acts swiftly. He imprisons and he executes militarily, legally, one of the sons of thunder, James, the brother of John. And it's interesting, you know, Jesus looks James in the eye back in Luke and says, you are going to drink of the cup that I drink of, and here it is. And then as the church is reeling from that tragedy, Herod initiates another tragedy and goes after Peter and imprisons him for the same fate. And, and honestly, it's, it's kind of politically savvy, if you think about it. Uh, the way is still very, very popular with the people, and yet he sees it as a threat. So what do you do? You take out small, mid-level leadership first. You make a small move, and you see how everyone reacts. If they react poorly, you haven't lost too much face, and you can kind of step back and be like, my bad. But if they react as people react and say, okay, sure, I guess you know what you're doing. I guess they were a threat. Then you go for the head, and that's exactly what Herod does. And I imagine the situation must have seemed rather hopeless from a practical standpoint from the church. Maybe not a spiritual standpoint, but a practical standpoint. Belief in the resurrection does not dull the executioner's sword. Those two things are still equally real right now. And Peter knows it, and the rest of the church knows it, and so, having no options left, with the end drawing near, both Peter and the church in Jerusalem seek the comfort and solace of the Holy Spirit in worship and prayer. And again, this is a good and a right and a profitable thing for them to do, and it is the same for us to do. Taking comfort and seeking the comfort of the Spirit is one of the greatest gifts afforded to us by God. However, the Holy Spirit desires more than merely to comfort us. 
He is not here merely to console. He is here to transform. He is here to redeem. And so he begins to work to do just that, regardless of what the disciples or even the apostles think is certainty. And one of the reasons I love this passage in Acts is that it doesn't polish up the church, and it doesn't even polish up Peter, okay? Not only does showing the disbelief and the confusion of those who are God's elect keep this story of supernatural interference in day-to-day life from seeming kind of like contrived or fictionalized. It keeps it real, right? But it offers me great hope that despite my doubts, despite my low expectations sometimes, the Spirit will work beyond me into those things because he is unstoppable even if I'm not. And I also love the fact that there is humor injected into it, okay? Like, I'm, I'm sure Monique is with me in this. You know, like, who loves good gallows humor? We do, we do. Okay, like, I, you know, there, it's, it's when things are difficult, okay? I mean, there's no doubt that the situation is serious. The church appears to be powerless. The church appears to be in shock. But sometimes in those crucial moments, what we need is a bit of levity to help us take a deep breath and refocus ourselves on what's important. And that's exactly what this story does. Peter is roused from his sleep, and he participates in what has to be the easiest and the most daring prison break in the entire New Testament. Okay? It is one thing to escape from the temple storeroom like the, like the apostles did back in Acts chapter 5. It is another thing to escape from Herod Antipas I's own dungeon. It's like being, it's like being boosted out of an antiquity supermax. Okay? Like, it, it, this is Rome we're talking about. They don't mess around. He's chained to two guards. They don't mess around. And so I guess, we can, I guess we can't be too hard on Peter for thinking that this is all like a comforting vision or, or God's promise that spiritual freedom will come when the sword descends in the morning. Okay, and yet, when the last gate is cleared and he's out on the street, the reality is this. The Holy Spirit has not merely intervened theoretically or spiritually. He has intervened in the real His response to prayer and worship is active, concrete movement, even when Peter doesn't recognize it, even when I don't recognize it. God isn't doing something theoretically. He is doing something actually. And so a bewildered and an overjoyed Peter sneaks through the streets to the home of those that he meets with for worship and prayer and says his time in order to rejoice with them and to say his farewells before moving on and completing his escape from Jerusalem. Some say this is the first time that he went to Rome, actually. Likewise, the church is interceding for Peter, and they are in worship and prayer deep into the night, and it is fervent and it is authentic. There is no reason... There's no reason to think through the language of Scripture that what they're doing is not fervent, not authentic, okay? We've got to realize, Luke is not trying to get us to question the faith of Peter or question the faith of the church. Instead, he is allowing us to see the church as not 
perfect, but imperfect, muddled, works in progress, just like you, just like me. Okay, that's why this story is so refreshing, even while it's funny. Furthermore, Luke reminds us that more than once, this is all taking place during Passover, okay? Think about this. We don't know how many years have passed, okay, since, since the Passover where Jesus redefined everything here, okay? But the church is highly attuned right now to God's story of deliverance for his people and how that deliverance is now tied to the resurrection and triumph of Jesus, but that also highlights something else for me when I read this, okay? Is that this, how easy it is for the believer in Christ to truly believe something in general and yet have great difficulty connecting it to the daily life. The ideal that God delivers and rescues and resurrects is not squaring with the reality of the church that is mourning James and is getting ready to mourn Peter. And so even fervent prayers are tinged with reservation. Even authentic hope is tinged with hopelessness. And yet God's spirit is still at work in spite of those mixed expectations. And as they pray for Peter's deliverance, he is delivered bodily right to their door. And as he knocks, they don't answer. They continue to pray. And as he knocks again, and as he knocks again, they send the smallest, the least, the servant of all to go investigate the disturbance into their worship. And I love Rhoda. I love her, man. I love her not only because she's like the most marginalized of this group. They're like, well, we're all worshiping, but I guess we could send you to go check on the door. Okay, but likely she is the youngest. She is probably just a little girl. And so she is able to view the situation with the faith of a child and really truly connect what is general to what is actual. And I also love that she responds in such a chaotic, even childlike manner. She is so excited about the Holy Spirit's reality colliding with her expectations and winning that she leaves Peter high and dry at the door. And she sprints back into the congregation with the news. It's Peter. It's Peter. He's actually here. And the rationalizations begin. Oh, what a fantastic imagination the kid has. Isn't that precious? Okay. You must just be hearing things, dear. No, no, no. Even better. We can explain this. We live in a resurrected reality so you are experiencing a vision of the already executed Peter coming to console us as a church in our loss. Isn't that good of God? Isn't that good of him? Faith one minute and doubt the next. Isn't that our story too? And yet here's Peter just, and the Spirit just continuing to knock until we are willing to be opened up. And it has the ring of truth, right? Ordinary truth. Like down-to-earth truth, even while it's telling us something extraordinary and very heaven-on-earth-ish. I mean, isn't that one of the prime goals of the Holy Spirit? To bridge the gap, erase the gap between the natural and the supernatural in our lives? To 
to integrate the kingdom of the ordinary and the kingdom of the glory of God? Isn't that what he's all about? Isn't that what he's been about from the beginning? And all this is accomplished, not through any superior strategy, not through any pure morality, not through any better ethical solution or better governance or increased technology or or anything, anything that would dwell naturally in us as humanity. And certainly not anything that's being hawked out to us by the merchants of the better, safer, fuller future. Has nothing to do with anything of what's going on, does it? No, no, no. This deliverance, this concrete movement comes from one thing. When we are willing, despite our reservations, despite our lack of hope or faith, to engage in the worship and prayer of our God as the one who is able. Yeah. And here is where I see the heart of the encouragement, and here is where I see the challenge. I expect too little out of my worship, and I expect too little out of my prayer. I expect it to be a joy to God, and I expect it to be a comfort to me, and it is, but God expects it to be a place where heaven meets earth, and heaven overtakes and transforms, and that is what makes it pleasing to him, and that is what makes it a comfort to me. How would worship and prayer actually be pleasing to God if he doesn't ever do anything with it? If he just sits and goes, well, wasn't that nice? Joy for God is when the world looks more the way that he created it to be. And what actually brings me joy? Is it this detached belief that God hears my prayer and experiences my worship and that it's pleasing to him? Or is joy actually coming from some con- something concrete that when I give him what is his, he is actually doing something with it and he is making the world look more like it's intended to be, even if I can't see that right now? What, what reason is there to worship and pray if something's not really happening? There isn't a reason. It's not really joy to God, and it's not really a comfort to me if those things aren't really happening, is it? There's one other thing you've got to tag on to all this, though. There's one other character in our story with low expectations of worship, and it's Herod. Okay? As, as the chapter closes out with this challenge of the gospel versus Herod, we not only see the church vindicated and, and her oppressor brought low, but we see that worship plays a role in this part as well at the end. Specifically misplaced worship. Herod stands in front of the crowd and speaks, and in their eagerness to get what they want out of him, they say, oh, this isn't the voice of a man. This is the voice of a God. And he just lets the false praise like, wash over him. Thinks absolutely nothing of being deified. Possibly even thinks that he is worthy or at least entitled to a little bit of excessive adoration. Because, I mean, after all, he's the king of the province, right? But worship's a powerful thing. It is not to be underestimated when it is rightly directed. And it is certainly not to be underestimated when it is misdirected. Watch out when we direct our worship away from the one who is worthy of it because the spirit 
acts, again, not theoretically, but decisively, and of his own means and volition. I think it's important for us to realize there is no indication here that the church prays for the downfall of Herod, okay? Let's just be real clear about that. No. All they do is they direct their praises to God, and they trust his purposes, and they let him do his thing. And I see a lot of misdirected worship about tragedies in our lives, where we pray for other things to be brought low. I don't know if we should play with that. I really don't think that's, I really don't think that that's where our worship and our prayer goes. I think instead our worship and our prayers for God to be who he is and be about the things that he is about, and we trust his purposes, and we let him finish the job. I think it's a really, really good model in our time and place and the tragedies that we are encountering, and I think we have to embrace it at all costs. And so we are going to embrace it. Um, We're going to be spending, right now, we are going to enter into an extended time of response um, at the table, an extended time of worship, an extended time of prayer and song and prayer and prayer. And as we do, I just want to leave you with this question to really, really ask you to challenge yourself on this one. What do I expect out of this time? What are my expectations? What might God do with the praise that we offer? How is he drawing our hearts to him? And how is he not just transforming us, but how is he transforming the world through the praise of his glory and the worship and the prayers of his church today. Church, I encourage you not to hold anything back today. As we worship, as we pray, let us come with all of our emotions, with all of our hope, with all of our doubt, with all of our strength, with all of our frailty. Whatever it is you've got today, it's time to bring. And it's time to offer. And it's time to give. It is time for us to worship the one who is worthy. And it is time to worship the one whose spirit is mighty to save in all of our earth. Amen? Amen. Let's worship him.